Every dead body on Mount Everest was once an extremely motivated person. Extra, extra, read all about it. Podcast tackles controversies that define your world. Listen to Indubitably now. Extra, extra, read all about it. I was reading sort of randomly the other day. Uh, some articles about climbing Mount Everest. And I came across this one section of the mountain that is apparently called Rainbow Valley. That sounds nice. (laughs) Well, the reason it's called Rainbow Valley is because uh, it's named after the brightly colored mountaineering suits on the dead bodies that can be found there. Yikes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, not so nice anymore. (laughs) So there's like a lot of people that die on Everest. Yeah, it's not even close to being the most dangerous mountain in the world percentage-wise, but there is a large number of people who have who have died trying to climb it. So who are all these people that are trying to climb and <laughs> well, dying, I guess? Me looking at the articles. No, no, I don't think I I don't think I could. Actually, the funny thing is climbing Mount Everest is not that hard from the physical or technical standpoint. If you are capable of putting one foot in front of the other, as long as you put an appropriate amount of time training and acclimating properly to the altitude, most people are capable of climbing Mount Everest. Uh, The difficulty comes from the need to set ladders, ropes, navigate these massive crevasses that are there, carry gear, food, oxygen tanks, right? All the things that are needed to make the climb. So despite the fact that all of these people have passed away in their attempt. There are still about 6,000 people or so that have actually made it to the top. So Mm -hmm. how are they doing it if all of these difficulties are presenting themselves? Well, the way that they get to the top is by Sherpas. Um, So to introduce the Sherpas, there are one group of Sherpas with a capital S, and that refers to a member of a Tibetan people who live in the Himalayas in Nepal. And many of these Uppercase Sherpas are also lowercase Sherpas, which are essentially mountain guides that work for expedition companies that foreigners will hire to help them summit, uh, in this case, Mount Everest. And they have the knowledge, they do the heavy lifting, literally, and they take the majority of the risks when it comes to climbing the mountain. It's pretty evident that being a Sherpa is one of the most dangerous jobs in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, there have been over 300 deaths on Mount Everest. And with less than about 6,000 people summiting, that's like a 5% death rate. Uh, and about 100 of those have been Sherpas. And despite all their training and knowledge, uh, the extra risks that they have to take in order to serve the clientele of people climbing Everest puts them at a greater possibility of dying in, in their line of work. Mm-hmm. And let's let's talk about some of the specific dangers of climbing Mount Everest. The first major danger zone is called the Kumbu Icefall. And I'll give you one guess why it's called that. Is it because ice falls there? <laughs> yes, very good. Um, <laughs> Thank uh, you. Kind of a kind of a, a serious matter is it's a it's a very dangerous area of the mountain where it's highly prone. To avalanches. And in, in fact, in 2014, there was a massive avalanche that ended up killing 16 Sherpas. And, you know, these things, these ice falls and avalanches are completely unpredictable. Every time you go up, every time you cross through this area, you're risking your life. Um, Sher- Sherpas talk about this and they say that the best way to get through it alive 
is to just move as fast as possible. They tell stories of just running back down through this section to get through it as quickly as they can, because every second that you spend there is a, is a second that you're putting your life in danger. This is just wild that people are voluntarily going up this mountain. And obviously there are so many points at which they could die. Mm. And then the Sherpa have to do it a lot because they're not just like climbing recreationally. Right. The, the, the clients who want to get to the top of Mount Everest might cross through this section once on the way up, once on the way down. But the Sherpas oftentimes will cross this icefall region 30 times in a single climb. And the reason for that starts to get us into uh, what this episode is about. So the foreign climbers need the Sherpas to carry gear, ladders, oxygen, which put it simply can't be done in one trip. And beyond that, expedition companies have gotten more and more expensive as they offer a more and more extravagant experience climbing Mount Everest. So as a result, Sherpas are taking even more trips, carrying not just the essentials, but also imported food, heated tents, and dining tables so that their clients can have as comfortable a trek to the top of the mountain as possible. So it sounds like going up Everest is kind of the hiking version of glamping now, the way that people (laughs) are just kind of going and having this like luxurious experience rather than it being a daunting challenge. And as a result, there are so many more people attempting it annually than there used to be. So it's about 800 people per year, which is just an extreme number of people that Mm -hmm. have to be served essentially by the Sherpas to go up and down the mountain. Yeah, but instead of taking a, a 40-foot RV to glamp, you take a Sherpa that has to take 40 trips to provide of you all your luxuries. And with more people going on this trek, we, we get some pretty serious problems. There's a approximately a 10-day window every year where it is feasible to, to summit Mount Everest. And that 10 days could shrink down to maybe even just two or three days, depending on the weather. And considering that portions of the mountain have to be traversed single file, that means all 800 of these people or every, everybody attempting it on any particular day can only move as fast as the slowest front runner moves. And this becomes a really big problem when we get to the second major danger zone, which is Rainbow Valley, or as it's more accurately referred to, is the death zone. And the death zone is altitudes above a certain point where the pressure of oxygen is insufficient to sustain human life for an extended time span. So this is somewhere around 8,000 meters of elevation. And if you stay here, you will die, period. It puts a time limit on how long you have to summit and then get back down below this mark. This does not sound worth it. (laughs) (laughs) This is a... I guess why people want to undertake this so they can get their selfie and say that they survived. Uh, but of course the selfie doesn't show all the Sherpas doing all the work for them. Or, or the dead bodies, I'm assuming. No, I don't think I've seen a selfie with that. Um, and so when there's only 30% of normal oxygen levels at this altitude, most people experience hypoxia, which is literally just oxygen deficiency. And when that happens, your lungs have to work so hard to try and compensate for the lack of oxygen that 
you have an increase in your heart rate, your blood thickens, eyesight becomes blurry, headaches, nausea, dizziness. Like these things are almost guaranteed. And apparently a third of climbers that reach 7,500 meters experience hallucinations. I thought I just had a bad time going to Denver. Yeah. (laughs) This this, this sounds so awful. Everything you tell me more and more, I'm just like, I don't understand the motivation for doing this, but, um, and the, and these aren't normal, you know, daydream hallucinations. These hallucinations get to the point that people get so confused about what is real and what isn't. They end up taking off their clothes, top of Mount Everest, middle of the snow, freezing temperatures, and they just start stripping because they experience a sensation of heat because cold can create this burning sensation and to relieve it, they just start taking off clothes. And obviously that does not end well. And so you can see that this single file line of would-be summiters and their Sherpas being held up by climbers that aren't prepared for this sort of trek is, a, is an incredibly dangerous thing. And it's not just necessarily the person who's out of shape that dies, but oftentimes they lead to somebody else's death instead. So it sounds like the conditions are really opportune for irresponsible people to take advantage of some of the services. If you have the money, you can basically come to Everest unprepared and not only put yourself at risk, but your own, I guess, ineptitude or carelessness about the process and all the work that goes into it can really impact a lot of other people and lead to, if not just your own death and the death of a lot of other people around you as well. Mm-hmm. I, I, I remember those motivational posters that they'll have sayings like responsibility or friendship or commitment with some cute saying under it. I, I saw a demotivational poster once, <laughs> the, the opposite of the motivational poster. And it said, every dead body on Mount Everest was once an extremely motivated person. But not every body on Mount Everest was once an extremely motivated person. Some of those bodies were just people desperate to feed their families. Some of those bodies were the Sherpas. When it comes to the reality is that there are people who are going up Everest because they're put into this position where they have to make a living that way. It raises some questions about, are there reasonable limits for what we can ask people to do or what people should voluntarily quote unquote, sign up to do in the interest of making money, Mm -hmm. especially in places like Nepal is a dangerous or abusive alternative better than no alternative. Um, And especially when it comes to the relationship between the rich and the poor and then individuals and nations. And then looking at broader philosophical questions of when is choice actually coercion? I think the uh, stories we've heard already about what it takes to get up Everest point to some really interesting dichotomies between choice and privilege. Right. I mean, technically, these Sherpas are choosing this occupation, but I think a lot of times choice can be coercive to answer the question. And so I think those are excellent questions. Let's get in by starting with, should there be limits to the risks people are allowed to take for money? And being a Sherpa is certainly not the only job where workers put themselves in harm's way for money. I think as a culture, at least in the US, we're fascinated by 
dangerous jobs. I'm thinking of TV shows like Ice Road Truckers or The Deadliest Catch that follows crab fishermen in the Bering Sea. And even beyond the the Hollywood versions of these jobs, you have loggers or miners, or similarly, you can look at sex workers or women who serve as surrogates, which was actually another big industry in Nepal alongside Sherpas until it was banned in 2016, which we can talk about a little bit later. And despite our fascination with these dangerous jobs and our appreciation for the fact that they are incredibly dangerous, it's actually really telling when you look at the actual compensation that people receive for these these professions, which are something that a lot of people probably would not do if they had a choice. Um, I'm thinking about the most dangerous job in the United States is logging, which actually surprised me. And I'm from Oregon and I didn't know that. (laughs) I assumed it was something else, but it's extremely dangerous. And they earn less than $42,000 per year on average, Mm. which is not a lot of money. And I don't know if the trade-off for the risk is is worth it. No, especially when when I think of loggers and some of these towns where that's a popular industry, it's not like it's a high school job or an entry level job. You know, this is this is what people do for their lives, right? They mm-hmm. are a logger, which means they are for the rest of their life taking on this risk every time they go out to work for 40K a year. And then there are coal miners, which actually still exist. <laughs> they're not they're not just like a um, Victorian figment of our imagination in a Dickens novel, but the median salary for that job is $55,000 per year. Again, it's really not that much money considering also the health risks that come with that type of job. Um, I, I'm sure it's better than it used to be, but it's still, there's a risk of mind collapse. And then there's all of the particulate matter that people are inhaling. Like that cannot be a safe job. But looking at different industries that people might not actually consider to be as literally dangerous as, you know, like getting a tree falling on you or something like that, there's other jobs that do carry risks to them. If we want to consider them jobs, that's also debatable. But uh, surrogacy, which you briefly touched on already, Mm -hmm. um, is like a commodification of, of a person's body to carry someone else's child. And the Compensation for that is not very much either. It's like thirty to forty-six thousand dollars plus some expenses. And that's that's in the United States. That's in the United States, and um, there are physical dangers that come with it. It's actually not like oh, there's just like there just happens to be a fetus. Like the 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 toll that pregnancy takes on a person's body is actually pretty extreme, and risk it puts people's lives at risk. But there's also a lot of emotional trauma that comes from the process as well. And then you you only get like 30 grand for it. It just seems like you're giving somebody an extension of their family and not getting compensated very much considering all the risks at place. And And the interesting thing here is as compared to the first two where we said, okay, this, this is a career, it's sort of a one-time payment, which on one hand, you could say is a better circumstance because you can do this once, get the money, and then maybe use that money to um, forward your life in in some way. But on the other hand, it it means also that it's you're making some permanent sacrifices for that one time lump of money. Yeah, and you know maybe that makes it more worth it, less worth it. I'm not sure, but 
definitely falls into the category of taking on these pretty serious risks and and damaging your body because you feel like you have to for a for a certain amount of money. So there's really interesting divide when it comes to these cases in the United States in particular, which is where we're looking at for these examples, is that they are incredibly risky. And the compensation that people are getting for doing those incredibly risky things is really not that substantial, Mm -hmm. which raises a lot of questions about the motivations behind even actually doing these jobs. If they are so risky, why would anybody, (laughs) why would anybody do this? Right. And those, and those risks and the lack of rewards is obviously exacerbated when we look to similar industries in other countries. And this leads us to, I think, nicely into the second question, which would be examining the relationship between the rich and the poor, both rich countries to poor countries, and also rich individuals to poor individuals. Exactly. So for the the Sherpas who are assisting people going up Mount Everest, they earn about $4,000 per climbing season, which that's an absurdly low amount of money considering Mm -hmm. the service that they're providing. Mm -hmm. But also taking into consideration that it costs between like $28,000 to $85,000 to climb Everest. It's a big question about why isn't more money going to the Sherpas who are facilitating this? Mm-hmm. And those prices have actually gone up. Like I, I'd mentioned earlier, what have they, as they've added more and more luxury to this expedition, I've seen prices raise as high as $130,000 for one summit to Everest. And the more expensive and the more services they add on, the greater the toll on the Sherpas too. So somebody out there is making a whole lot more money and all the Sherpa is doing is taking on more risk. I always have questions about models like this when the people who are doing the bulk of the work are getting paid extremely low amounts of money. I wonder where's the money going? It's just like the daycare industry in the United States where the actual care providers are making minimum wage, but it costs about as much to send a child to daycare as it does to send them to college. So <laughs> capitalism, mm-hmm. I'm not yeah. a fan of it. <laughs> and this is this is similar to the surrogacy industry. I, I think you had you had the numbers because you're you're up on pop culture a little bit better than I am. But mm-hmm. uh, Kim Kardashian had mm-hmm. a surrogate child. Is that right? She had two. So she mm-hmm. had two children um, herself, but she experienced. Um, something like preeclampsia that's actually life-threatening for people who are pregnant. So what she ended up doing for her second two pregnancies was that they hired surrogates and each time they paid about a hundred thousand dollars, only about $45,000 of which was actually going to the surrogates. And that's like within the average that people pay for surrogacy in the United States. But, and so those, yeah, those surrogates were Americans. I'm pretty sure. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, yes, because she went to the Met Gala and she knew that she might have to fly home early for the birth of one of them mm. in, in LA. So that they were at least in America um, during the pregnancy. Mm-hmm. But I think what's more astounding is that Kim Kardashian could afford to pay way more than the, mm-hmm. the average that a surrogate would earn. Her net worth right now is about $1.2 billion. There's no reason she couldn't have maybe paid like a million dollars or something proportionally larger for this type of service. I just, I feel like it's actually the point of abuse that she did not pay more when she absolutely could have. 
Mm-hmm. And and the reason I asked if if the surrogates were American is because this is way worse in Nepal, for example. So if the if the American surrogate is making around forty five thousand for the pregnancy in Nepal, this is before it was criminalized. The women there were making between five and six thousand, and in Ukraine, the estimate is between twelve and thirteen thousand, which is three times the average Ukrainian salary. But again, the average Ukrainian job does not put your body or your emotions through these kind of toils and is obviously more sustainable than having a child when you, every time you need money to feed your family. It seems pretty obvious that when people go to countries in order to get a bargain on these types of services, that they are engaging in a form of exploitation of the circumstances. They're paying people in these areas more than they could make in other industries, but they're also paying them less than they would make if this was in a different country. So it seems like a very shady type of motivation to kind of outsource surrogacy and things like that. So uh, is to get back to this question, is the relationship here between the rich and the poor, is it a symbiotic one or is it a parasitic one? Maybe it's both. Mm. Actually, and I and and for those of you who might have watched it, the Korean movie Parasite, which was really popular, I think last year, is is named after this concept, right? It examines the socioeconomic hierarchy in the country and and looks at here's the people who are paid basically nothing by these incredibly rich individuals and the jobs they have in the movie aren't you know they're tutors or they're they're drivers they're not dangerous but still that relationship and questioning that relationship and is it symbiotic or is it parasitic i think is like the main one of the main themes of that movie so something to think about if you do happen to watch it or watch it again uh, keep that in mind as you as you go through it i think what's telling in that example is that in parasite they wanted these jobs because they are jobs that paid so much more than they could have been making otherwise, but they were still like demeaning jobs. Mm-hmm. So they got theirs in the end. <laughs> yeah, well, sure. Don't spoil it. But That's there, right. there, there's a certain degree of like desperation involved, but then there's also a certain degree of desire to in to make the money that is available in these scenarios. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a really hard question to determine how much of this is due to free choice versus like being forced into it due to economic circumstances. Well, that that brings up the other question, which is, okay, if Kardashian, for example, is paying $45 million to the surrogate, but $100 million overall, where is this money going? And a lot of it's going to expedition companies or surrogacy agencies. So in Nepal, for example, Mount Everest, as a corporation, if you will, makes mm-hmm. tens of millions of dollars every year. Um, in fact, in Nepal, tourism makes up 10% of its total GDP. And this relationship between the rich and the poor gets to be especially poignant when after the 2014 avalanche that we referenced earlier, where 16 Sherpas died, the government of Nepal offered $400 to each family affected out of a $10 million a year industry. That's just shameful. Yeah, there was there was a lot of protest based on that because I mean, like even four thousand dollars a season for the Sherpas to make is 
pretty bad, but then to offer $400 to their families after they pass away is, is pretty insulting. I'd rather have no money than 400. I mean, I guess it's easy for me to say that, but uh, at least a part of me would rather have no money than $400 if it's, right. if it's coming at the death of, you know, husband, father, whatever. Um, and the, anyway, and the surrogacy industry is worth over $25 billion internationally. And again, some of some of these women are being paid six thousand, twelve thousand dollars in other countries, or you know, forty thousand in the United States. Why aren't people making more money in these risky situations? What is actually preventing some sort of equity in compensation, considering the amount of risk that people are taking on in these roles? Mm. I think one big factor here is is an economic principle that's known as the race to the bottom. And this is most commonly used to refer to countries who deregulate their business environment in efforts to lower the cost of production and attract investment by foreign business. Uh, They drop labor or environmental standards or tax rates and basically create a situation where their workers can be taken advantage of in order to get these big companies to move into their borders and set up shop. So we're all familiar with Nike sweatshops or the conditions in Apple's factories overseas, or Fiji Water, for example, who basically blackmailed Fiji's government into giving them tax-exempt status as they extracted water using diesel fuel generators and utilized distribution methods that required almost two gallons of water for every one bottle shipped. And all of this happened in a country where 12% of the population doesn't have access to clean drinking water. That's what corporations do in other countries, but we're talking about actual individuals in these situations. Yeah. So I think that the the theory applies to individuals as well, which is basically, you know, in an attempt to attract the money that's out there, right? If you have a huge population that's desperate enough to take on that work for money, the only way to differentiate yourself from all of the other people who are willing to do it is to be willing to do it for cheaper. And so this race to the bottom just sees the wages that people are willing to accept for that work get lower and lower and lower. Um, if one person's willing to do it for 8000 and a potential employer, you know, a couple that's looking for a surrogate mother says, all right, you know, I guess we'll take you for 8000 The next person in line, says, okay, I'll do it for seven and a half and so on and so on and results in this race to the bottom. There are a lot of people who would argue that that's the market working like it should. Yeah, and those people are called capitalists, which, you know. Sure. I try to keep I try to keep this stink off my voice as I said it. <laughs> you didn't succeed. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Solution tax Jeff Bezos. Ta- tax Jeff Bezos. We need to stop using that in every single episode. Anyway, I'm okay. Just, <laughs> like maybe eventually if we put it out there, the universe will hear us and it will happen. Mm. But I mean, this, the, these sorts of things are the reason why the wealth gap is increasing across the globe and in, in almost every area that you can look to. This raises the question, you know, the people are living in impoverished circumstances, which is what makes them desperate for the money in the first place, which leads them to this quote choice are there any alternatives? Are there other ways out of an impoverished situation besides risking your life or or putting your body in harm's way? 
I guess in countries where there are no other viable industries, either due to the environmental factors at play or that the government has put all its eggs in one basket, what options do people have to make money in any other way other than potentially leaving the country? Mm -hmm. But I think that's an interesting point you just made where, you you know, if the government puts all its eggs in one basket. So again, looking back to Mount Everest and Nepal, the, the Nepalese government doesn't put a limit on the number of permits that they issue to climb Mount Everest. So if you want to climb Mount Everest, you pay $11,000 just for the permit. And you, you have to provide a doctor's note that says that you're ready. But, you know, we can get doctor's notes for most things pretty easily now. So $11,000 and a doctor's note, and you have your permit. There's no limit on that. And again, the, here, the government has an incentive to put out as many permits as possible to generate this tourist revenue that we talked about. But every person on the mountain is A, putting themselves in danger, B, putting the Sherpa guiding them in danger, and C, putting everybody else in line behind them in danger, stuck in Rainbow Valley because your ass is too slow. My ass in particular would be too slow. <laughs> but I don't think you would uh, be going up there trying either. No, I'm definitely afraid of heights. There's no way I would ever go anywhere near it. Mm. So with with these monetary incentives, the structure of capitalism itself, governments looking to make money, are there any alternatives? Like what what could these people do or what are some other policies or economic incentives that could be provided to change the circumstance? Yeah, I think in the case of Nepal, when there does not seem to be any real viable alternative to the work of being a Sherpa, but also people are insistent upon going upon these expeditions to climb Everest. So there's no alternative for them either in terms of who's going to do the work. Mm-hmm. So I think that's where you know we can take some lessons from the labor movement and collective bargaining, getting people to strike, <laughs> to unionize and strike and demand better conditions because if they're not doing it, no one else is doing it. Mm, and they can really true. put a stranglehold on the tourist industry there if they um, unionize essentially. That's true. Especially we, t- we talked about how short the window is to yeah. climb Everest, right? There's a 10 day window. And if they say every day they sit out is, is potentially millions of dollars going down the drain that you can't get back again until the following year. Yeah. The only problem is just like with every other labor movement, there's the risk of scabs, as we so kindly call them. Mm. And, and there are people who would cross picket lines to get paid. I think mm-hmm. one one thing that makes it probably not as feasible for people who are doing this work to strike is that how else are they going to feed their families if they strike and they don't get compensated? Mm-hmm. But at the at the same time, in this instance, there's also not a large enough labor pool to where these expedition companies could could reasonably bring in alternatives. The 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 Sherpa people, capital S, you know, that live up in these mountains are basically the only people who are qualified to do this and become lowercase s Sherpas. Um, so I think that's maybe different than a bus driver strike, for example, in the United States, where they can go out and get other people to drive the buses for a couple of weeks while the negotiation happens. But there's still some people who are already doing that job who might still cross the picket line in the interest of feeding their families as well. Mm. Um, so you really would have to communicate to everyone the importance of the solidarity of it. 
and let them know that it would be worth their while, that they may have a temporary, you know, loss of income in order to achieve their ends. But if they do achieve their ends, they could wind up being more justly compensated and earn a really nice living perhaps. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. It does definitely require a buy-in from everyone, which the challenge there is it's kind of in stark contrast to this idea of the race to the bottom as everyone's buying in that just increases opportunity for the one or two standouts to step in and fill those gaps and make their money and being willing to take that lower wage. Yeah. It's very difficult. And I think, but that's what the, that's what these expedition companies and governments know. They know the fear of the families, I think, where if they lose the negotiation, they don't eat for a year versus the government loses money. The expedition company loses money, but in the long run, they're probably still survive. So like people who are climbing Everest who actually appear to have some sympathy for the Sherpas who are doing this work, they can afford to have this like luxurious experience going up the mountain. They could probably also afford to help people keep some standard of living while they strike for better conditions. I'm just saying like, if you can spend $80,000 to climb a mountain, you can probably also kick a few grand to a Sherpa to help them feed their families and in the interest of labor rights. Yeah. Maybe if, maybe if pressure from the labor force doesn't work, then pressure from the consumer would work. Um, Whether it's these tourists coming in to climb Mount Everest, putting pressure on the expedition companies to give a more equitable cut to Sherpas, or whether it's pressure from people looking for surrogates, putting pressure on the agencies to ensure that the surrogates are fairly compensated, maybe that would be more effective. But then it requires, rather than a group advocating for themselves, it requires the consumer to have some empathy for the individuals providing them their labor. I'd like to think that people have that kind of motivation that they actually care about other people and want to advocate for people who don't have as much as they do. But I think if anything, we've seen that that's just not how the world works. Listen to our podcast, understand the plight of the Sherpa, be more empathetic. People climbing Mount Everest that happen to be listening to this. Yeah. If you climb Mount Everest (laughs) and you're listening to this, I think you should feel really bad right now that you're probably contributing to economic inequality and probably people dying. And you should donate to them and us. But we don't I, have any way to be <laughs> accepting donations. Um, this is very mentally taxing for us too, Kelly. Um, um, so, yeah. So, but but on on a on a more serious note, you know there are, there are people out there, and whether it's non governmental organizations or governments or private individuals that do try to implement systems that can help people in these types of circumstances. I know that there was a big movement in Southeast Asia and on the continent of Africa to engage in micro lending um, specifically to women in poor communities and giving them the capacity to use that money to build up a business or educate themselves or just create a more sustainable and less abusive career upon which they could build their lives. Yeah. Some of the stories you'd hear from the success of micro lending um, would be like a woman getting a cell phone as a result of a micro loan. And then she would rent out use of the cell phone to people in her community. And that would be a way that she would start to earn, or it would be another woman who would use her micro loan to purchase supplies, to do handicrafts that she could sell. They're making their own decision about how they're going to be using those resources and creating a type of income that they actually feel motivated to do. They're not just forced to do it because there's no other option. 
Mm-hmm. And those those are interesting because they're they're lower profits in the beginning, but they're sustainable. They're not having to make this dangerous choice that could a get them killed or b irrevocably alter their body or emotions in the case of surrogacy. And so maybe it's less money up front, but it happens in a fashion that, like you're saying, can be built upon and really grow into something sustainable in the long run, which which might be the better option in a lot of cases. And I think as a lesson from that, it might be something that governments can look to as well. So a country like Fiji, who allows for a company like Fiji Water to come in and take advantage of them and Maybe they see some short-term benefit for the jobs that are created, but it's certainly not sustainable as they see the natural resources of the water being taken away, as they see themselves being coerced into giving away these tax breaks. You know, maybe a, a slower but more sustainable approach on a national level would be the way to go as well, not just in terms of the individual choices that people are making when they're given the opportunity to through things like microlending. I think a lot of countries that have one dominant industry or one sector that a company is willing to invest in oftentimes don't feel highly motivated to diversify because the the profits are still coming in, money's still good, and it, it costs something to develop a new industry and it costs things to court business to, you know, come and operate in, in their territory. So it's really, I think, a matter of looking short-term versus it's really a matter of looking short-term versus long-term with a lot of these decisions that governments are making. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, it's very difficult to look long-term when you're in these situations. I, I remember the quote, it's very expensive to be poor. <laughs> and some of the decisions that you have to make when you're poor end up costing you a lot more money in the long run, but it's it's impossible to step back and kind of take that more long-term approach to things when you have to deal with just the day-to-day necessities of survival and how will you choose to approach those? How do you choose to make your money? Which I guess brings us to the last question, this kind of broader philosophical question, which is we say we're calling it choice, but when does choice become coercion? I think it's pretty evident from the examples we've talked about that a lot of the people who are in these industries that are damaging their bodies, damaging their mental health, don't really have any viable alternatives. So it's not really something that they choose to do because it would be a choice between doing this work and then nothing and then not being able to feed themselves. But let's say that they actually did have a choice. Let's say that they did not have the economic situations around them, compelling them to engage in these industries. Is there justification for people to take on extremely risky work in and of itself when it's completely free, freely decided on their own terms. Yeah, because I think, you know, we're talking about Nepal or maybe Ukraine when it comes to surrogacy or or some of these less developed countries around the world. But some of the examples that we referenced early in the episode were loggers or coal miners or truckers or deep sea fishermen in places like the United States, where certainly there are alternatives. But let's say, you know, yeah, these loggers, they make 40,000 a year and the the miners might be making 50,000 a year, which isn't a lot, but it is a respectable salary that you can 
survive on and get by on. It's it's more than a lot of people make in the country. That's for sure. Yeah, what differentiates, I think, the industries that we're talking about in the United States, which often are like family careers. A lot of the people who do these things are doing those uh, second or third generation in their families. Mm-hmm. There still exists the opportunity to break that pattern and make a decision other than that. It, it might be difficult, but it's not impossible. Like it might be in other areas. Mm-hmm. I guess the problem is if you're not able to step back out of that yourself, say, Hey, this is what my family's always done. So this is what I'm going to do. And that just seems like a given to you. That's not really a choice, right? Technically you chose to become a logger. You, you chose to enter into the mining industry, but if you've never questioned that path, that's what your grandfather did. That's what your father did. That's what you're doing now. I'm not sure that you're actually making an active choice. And so you would almost need some sort of external force to break that inertia that has its hold on you. But the problem is all of the external forces around you, whether it be the company that you work for, that industry, or the government that potentially relies on that industry, none of them really have a vested interest in waking you up or opening your eyes to the fact that there might be other possibilities around you that you could take. But there are other ways that that happens if we're talking about the United States. There's a public education system that most people go through that exposes people during their formative years to the options that are available to them. A lot of the time there's counseling involved, career counseling, helping people decide whether or not to go to college or to pick a vocation. So the cycle is definitely hard to break in some cases, but I do think that people get the opportunity to at least consider it Mm -hmm. in this country in a way that a lot of people maybe not in this country couldn't. Mm -hmm. So, okay, let's, let's say best case scenario here. You have somebody who has other options, maybe not quite as lucrative, but there are other options out there. Um, They've been awoken to and informed about those options at is there, is there any point where a, a person should not be allowed to make a choice to trade their own well-being for X amount of money? I think the commonly held principle is that as long as you are not doing any harm to others, you are free to do with your liberty what you will. And that can mean incredibly destructive things to your own body and your own mind. If you're freely making that decision, There's essentially no limit to the things that you could also make yourself endure, Mm. which is really interesting considering the logical conclusion that one could take if they're thinking about that, which is like, could I sell myself into slavery? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Obviously, this is not literally what's happening in most of the cases we're talking about today, but it is an interesting question to ask. When if I am freely deciding whatever it is I I plan to do and I'm not hurting anybody by it, could I literally put myself in a situation that completely voids me of my rights? If you got paid enough or whatever incentive that you decide on, that's interesting. I mean, that would be the most extreme example of that. So do we think that that's do we think that that's something that we should afford people the right to do, assuming that that choice is made with full awareness of the circumstances it's rational you know you're you're in your right mind is that something we should allow people to do 
depends on who you ask. <laughs> <laughs> I'm asking you. Well, I, I looked into this with um, the philosopher, John Stuart Mill, who says that you can't sell yourself into slavery, but it's not that you like literally cannot sell yourself into slavery. You could actually create some sort of contract and do it, I guess, in whatever municipality might honor that contract. I'm pretty but, sure that's called marriage. I don't even know how to respond to that. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. I mean, I'm sorry. If we want to talk about the labor dynamics of modern marriage, I that's a whole <laughs> tangent you don't want to get into with me right now. Why do I feel like I would lose that debate, especially <laughs> especially the day before Thanksgiving? <laughs> exactly. Um, but I think that John Stuart Mill is essentially saying you cannot voluntarily sell yourself into slavery or the concept of it, because as soon as you do so you've essentially given up your choice and it's no longer a free choice once you're actually under that contract or those circumstances that you agreed to, which I understand what he's saying in that regard. But I think if you go into a situation knowing that you're going to be giving up your rights as soon as the transaction is completed, then you gave up your rights at a point where you still had the agency to give up your rights. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting, it's an interesting hypothetical. I don't know if it's that hypothetical because again, if we if we look to things like the the examples we've kind of been using to frame this episode, the Sherpas, you sign this contract knowing that you this is the job you're going to undertake, but also signing on knowing that there's a, a chance that you die. And if you are dead, you cannot make choices. You cannot exercise rights. So in a way. They've signed into a contract that has eliminated their capacity to have any rights. I guess that's a fair point. It is because you don't have agency when you're dead. Or or the other example we mentioned a lot is a surrogacy. Mm -hmm. At the point where your body is irrevocably changed, again, you might not know what that really is when you sign the contract. You don't know what it feels like. You don't know what the all the potential outcomes could be. And then once that's happened, it's not like you can take it back. You can't opt back out of that contract. Even when the contract is over, meaning you've delivered the baby, your, your job is technically done. And yet you're stuck with the ramifications of that for the rest of your life. I do believe we, we need to acknowledge the fact that people who are surrogates can sometimes die as a result of the surrogacy. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I don't know. Personally, I'm sure other people would have different opinions on this, but it definitely seems to me as though there's a point that's too far where where choice is 100% coercive for x amount of money you've given away all of your rights or you have taken on just too high of a risk of death or physical harm so on one end of the spectrum definitely bad and then on the other end of the spectrum we have some of the cases that we talk about in the US where if you want to go and work on a deep sea fishing boat, you had other options um, that you could survive on and you made a, a conscious choice like, hey, this much money is worth whatever risk I'm taking on. I think it's hard to say that you're at least being coerced there, right? There, there Maybe there still needs to be some reform to the industry, safety standards, pay wages adjusted, et cetera. But that seems on the up and up. So I guess the question would be along this spectrum of real choice to coercion, where would we draw the line? Do people that work in coal mines, are they on the wrong side of the line? Are surrogates on the wrong side of the line? 
our Sherpas on the wrong side of the line? I think that there are very few people who make decisions about their employment without some kind of economic coercion. So I think that in those instances, it's really not on us to judge their decision-making about those jobs. The examples of, of surrogacy in countries outside of the U.S. and the Sherpas really point to a level of economic coercion that most Americans will never experience. But in the United States, a lot of the things we're talking about here also have a degree of economic coercion because it is hard if you don't have any resources to just pack up and leave timber country and get a job somewhere else without any other education or social safety net from your family or things like that. I think the only people who are making economic decisions and career decisions without some form of coercion are probably people like Kim Kardashian at this point. Like she has the psychological pressure of her mother. Don't get me started on Kris Jenner, Mm. but everything she does is done with so much money backing those decisions that there's almost no way to say that she has anything infringing her ability to freely choose. So if she wants to go be a coal miner, I think she would be the only person who's doing it completely of her own volition. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I guess, you know, hopefully there'll be people out there that recognize the situations where there aren't alternatives, like people living in the Himalayan mountains that doesn't exactly have a booming tech industry and make sure that there is some pressure on the powers that be, whether it's corporations or governments to ensure that those people have some sort of protection. Um, So I guess maybe a little bit of mindfulness and a little bit of research on behalf of people who do have choices might go a long way for helping people and kind of changing circumstances where they don't. And a, a good a good example of that, we, we have referenced it throughout the episode, was the fact that surrogacy was banned in Nepal in 2016 due to some pressure that was instigated by stories of women being taken advantage of and, and selling you know, their bodies and, and years of their lives for $5,000 per surrogacy. As usual, I think that those with privilege have a lot of responsibility towards making sure that those who don't have privilege can benefit in in some way, whether you pay people better than you currently do, whether you advocate for them better than the advocacy they're currently receiving. There are options we have to better the lot of others that we're probably not actively doing right now. Mm. So Let's be let's be mindful of that and potentially do some good in this world. All right. Last question. Mm. Climbing Mount Everest has a 5% death rate, is mm-hmm. what we've said. What amount of money would you need personally to take on a 5% chance of death? Like there's a there's a 20-sided die. You see how quick I did that math? There's a 20-sided die. <laughs> They're going to roll it. And if it comes up seven, you're dead. But if it comes up any other number, what amount of money would have to be assigned to those numbers for you to roll that dice? Do I necessarily have to climb a mountain in order to play this game? No, just just roll it. You could roll at the bottom of the mountain. You don't have to get to the top to roll this dice. Well, um, I believe it was in Fight Club that they said on a long enough timeline, everybody's survival rate is zero. Mm Mm-hmm. And I've already lived some years. 
Okay, um, you're thinking about this. All right. I am, this, this I, am, interesting. I am thinking about this. Like, well, I used to work in insurance, right? We didn't do too much with life insurance, but there are people who actually put a dollar value on your life, like actuaries. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think the US government actually has a value of people's lives that they've put forth if people know that, you know, there are varying degrees of things you would be compensated for if you like lost a limit work or things like that. Like $400 if your family dies in an avalanche. Yeah, exactly. That's that's fair. But I think it's something like $10.3 million is like the value of a human life in the United States or something along those lines. Okay. Um, I don't want a whole lot in life. I'm pretty comfortable as it is right now. I guess for a 5% chance of death, a million would probably be worth it. Wow. Okay. So you're comfortable now Mm -hmm. and you're willing to risk your life for a million bucks. So you could buy like a quarter of a house. No, I pay off my mortgage. (laughs) I pay off my mortgage. Mm Mm-hmm. I might actually probably stay working where I work because I do love what I do. Mm-hmm. Um, I would and keep just, doing the podcast and keep doing the podcast. Buy a better microphone. <laughs> <laughs> Buy somebody um, to edit so I don't have to do it. Yeah, I mean, it would just be like marginal improvements. I would be looking to make probably like get a new car. I need a new car in a few years, probably. Yeah, I don't. I don't. I'm not very fancy. Mm. I, I spent a lot of money on nail polish, but that's about it. So. Well, I, I wish you the best and I hope you do not roll that seven. What about you? <laughs> what about you? Oh my gosh. I'm not even sure I'd be willing to do it. Uh, because if I'm, if I'm relatively comfortable now, I'm relatively comfortable and alive. What is, what is 5%? One in 20. I want to mm-hmm. know what that looks like. Oh man. Um, if there was an amount, it would have to be the amount that would let me live my life exactly how I'd like to for the rest of it. So I think I'd be, I'd be trading a 5% chance of dying for a 95% chance to live my life exactly how I wanted to. I think 20 million would what be are my you planning number. To, what would happen? How would you use $20 million? I want to be able to just travel. And, you know, if I was going to be recording something, I could do it from wherever. If we want to talk about Mount Everest, we go to Mount Everest. If we want to talk about, you know, issues in South America, we go to South America. And I think that $20 million would let me do that. Maybe, maybe we're, we, neither one of us has any idea how much money it takes to live like rich people do. (laughs) <laughs> I don't want to live like a rich person. I, um, I, I don't want to lose perspective. Mm. I'm not a capitalist. <laughs> All right. Well, with that, I think um, this is another one of those episodes where we haven't quite answered the questions, but I think that at least is an interesting discussion. Looking at some people who have to ask themselves these questions around the world. Um, as usual, we'd love to hear any of our listeners' thoughts on this topic or any of our topics. So feel free to share that with us at Indubitably Pod on both Facebook and Twitter. And until next time, thank you so much for listening. And don't forget to rate our podcast and give it five stars because it's a five-star podcast. That's true. (laughs) Or you roll our 27th (laughs) time.